I want you to imagine a farmer, dairy farmer, pig farmer, maybe just best to picture Kevin Wilcox, okay? (laughs) Farmers get dirty, right? But what do they do when they come in the house at the end of the day? Well, they change their clothes. Uh, Their farm clothes are appropriate for the farm, but their farm clothes are not appropriate for the dinner table or for the living room. So they take those nasty boots off, they take those filthy Carhartts off, they take those off and they go and change. Now, let's just say that one day, Kevin's feeling a little saucy and he walks into the house after shoveling out the barn. And instead of changing, he just leaves everything on. And he comes in and he sits down on the couch. He grabs a throw blanket and a cup of coffee and he invites Angel to just come on up and cuddle. What do you think she's going to say? What in the world are you doing? You have lost your mind to take those clothes off and put on some clean ones, right? You've gone mad. Well, this idea actually connects to our passage this morning in this way. When we come to Christ... We change our clothes. When we come to Christ, we put off the clothes of our former thoughts, our former actions as non-Christians. Those thoughts and those actions were appropriate for our former life in the muck of the world before we were converted. But those thoughts and those ways are not appropriate for our new life in the household of God. Appropriate to our new life is a new set of clothes. And a new way of life that's reflective of our new identity in Christ. But here's the deal, and here's actually where this text pushes us this morning. This change of clothes, this change of life, is something we do daily. This is not merely something that happened back then, whenever you were converted. This is something that you are commanded to do every day. Just as sure as the farmer's got to come in and change his clothes every day after a long day of work, brothers and sisters, every day we must intentionally and consistently and persistently put off the old actions that are inconsistent with the gospel and put on new thoughts and actions that are consistent with the gospel. So here's what I'm saying this morning. As Christians, we've really got to live as Christians. That may sound like a shockingly obvious statement. (laughs) As Christians, we must really live as Christians. We must put off our former way of life. We must put on a new way of life. In our text this morning, Paul is going to root all of this in the glorious gospel of grace. So he's going to make it clear that none of this is done in order to be saved. This is not a salvation by morality thing. This is the work of our lives because we are saved. And Paul is going to press this down into the nooks and crannies of our lives in very real and practical ways. So before we begin, let me just pray and ask God's grace on our time. Let's pray one more time. Father, please open the eyes of our hearts this morning, Father. Please, Father, let us specifically think of how this word should fall on ourselves, Father, more than we think about how this word should fall on others. 
Oh God, be gracious to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 17 through 5, verse 2. And we're going to start this morning with Ephesians 4. We're going to read 17 through 19 to start. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what is this? Well, this is Paul right out of the gate saying, Christian, you cannot live like a non-Christian. You can't do it, don't do it. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. To walk in the Bible is to live. To walk in the Bible is, is your way of life. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, who are the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles are unbelievers. So Christian, you cannot live like a non-Christian. That's what Paul says right off the bat. And then he just steps aside and he describes the non-Christian. So he says basically like, like here's, here's what's going on with the non-Christian. Both what you can see and kind of what's, what's under the hood, what's under the surface. He says they're darkened in their understanding. What are they darkened in their understanding about? About God. About who God is. About what He's like. About how to know Him. If you were to talk to them about God, you would see that there's confusion there. So they may know some true things about God, but they don't, they don't know God. They're, they're darkened in their understanding. And they're alienated. Alienated from the life of God. They are not savingly known by God. They don't have a relationship with God. God is not their father. They are not his children. This, because of their ignorance, because they don't know him. But, take note, they're knowing of him, or they're knowing him, they're not knowing him, is not foremost an intellectual problem. It's not as though they simply don't have the appropriate information. They're not knowing him at root is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. Look at what Paul attributes this to. This ignorance, this darkened understanding, this alienation, this, this ignorance is because of their hardness of heart. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, comma, due to their hardness of heart. The reason the non-Christian doesn't know God is because the non-Christian does not want to know God. Do you remember what Jesus said? If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether my teaching, a.k.a. the gospel, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. You see, Jesus here and Paul here are getting underneath the hood of unbelief and under the hood is primarily a hard heart. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. Paul speaks of callousness. They have become callous. Callouses are a good thing. Playing the guitar, you form callousness.
calluses to protect your fingers from pain. Hard-working men have calloused hands that protect their hands from pain as they work hard. But spiritually speaking, calluses are dangerous. To be callous is to be hard, such that the, that the good pain that the gospel intends to bring you. What kind of pain is that? The pain of conviction of sin. Pain of brokenness over your rebellion to God and your hard-heartedness. You've become callous to that. You've insulated yourself from that. You don't feel that anymore. I preach or someone else preaches or the word of God goes out or you hear it or you see it and you just don't care. You've become callous. And as a result, look at what flows. Well, look at the actions. Look at the life. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, they've given themselves over to what? To sensuality. What what is it? Well, it's, it's to whatever seems to bring pleasure in the moment. It's to whatever it is that their heart tells them is going to satisfy that thirst of theirs in the moment. They they give themselves to it, and they they not only give themselves to it, they. They jump in and they, and they not only jump in, they, they jump in with abandon. The text says they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So have you ever just started a bar of chocolate and you think, you know what, I'm just going to eat a quarter of this puppy, right? You ever done that? And then you just devour, right? Or it's baseball season. So kids play, you know, baseball. They got, they got big league chew and they promise mom and dad, hey, I'll tell you what, when I'm in the dugout, I'm just going to, I'm just going to eat this much. And then all of a sudden you see them over there and they're like, I mean, I can't even breathe, right? It's like, this, this is what's happening here. It's a picture here of just having an uncontrolled and increasing appetite and ungodliness for sin, greedy to practice sin. I want it. I want more of it. Just kind of go after it. And I want you to note the progression. This is important. Hardness of heart leads to darkness of mind, leads to recklessness of life. Hardness of heart leads to darkness of mind, leads to recklessness of life. This is the downward spiral of unbelief. Hard hearts reject truths, and then rejection of truths leads to lives that reflect that reality. Now, this is not to say that every non-believer lives like an axe murderer, okay? Clearly, that is not the case. But it is the case that every non-Christian, what have they done? Well, they've taken God off of the throne of their lives and they have enthroned themselves there instead. And so what does that look like? Well, it just looks like they live lives bent toward themselves. They live, they live lives bent inwards. So there's not this submission to or, or delight in or desire to follow after God. There's just the opposite. There's a submission to, a delight in, and a desire to follow after the sovereign self. And Paul says, okay. It's just not an option for you, Christian. (laughs) That is just not an option for you. You cannot live like that at all. And now he begins to tell us why. And he begins to tell us how we are to live. So look at verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former life and is corrupt through deceit desires, deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So why must we absolutely not live like non-Christians? Because that is not the way you learn Christ. Verse 20. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So what does it mean to, what does it mean to learn Christ? What is the truth that is in Jesus? Well, it's really just to learn the gospel. It's to learn who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what it means for you. But what it means to learn Christ is to learn the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven to earth. He became a man. And he came. Why did he come? To save sinners from their sins. He died on the cross to pay the price for sinners' sin. And he rose from the grave three days later. And what does this mean for you? (laughs) Incredible things. It means you can be forgiven for putting yourself on the throne of your life. It means you can be forgiven for living that life. No longer, no matter how long you've lived it. That life that is bent inward towards yourself and your own desires and away from God. It means you can be forgiven for every sinful thought, every sinful deed, everything. But what must you do if you would have these blessings? Well, you must put off your old man... And you must put on the new. The response to the gospel isn't merely one of intellectual belief. But laying aside the old man, the thoughts and actions inconsistent with the gospel, and putting on the new man. Now there are two aspects of this that I just want you to see. Two aspects of this putting off and putting on. Okay? One of them is a one-time reality. So, brothers and sisters, when you came to Christ, you fundamentally... Put off the old man. That man who was born dead in sin. Anybody remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1? You who were dead in your transgressions and sin. When you came to Christ, you put that old man off and you put on the new man. You put on Christ. So coming to Christ means you actually died and became new. And we see this plainly taught both in baptism and in the scriptures. Think about baptism. What do you see? You plunge beneath the water. What is that picture? Death. Death to the old man. Death to sin. United with Christ in his death, we say. And then you rise up. What is that picture? Well, new life. New you, old man gone, new man alive. This is exactly what the scriptures teach. You know this verse. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. That's death. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Or how about 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old is gone. The old is dead. The old is buried. Behold, the new has come. Death. New life. Old man put off. New man put on. This happens definitively one time at conversion. But, here's the deal. This does not only happen at conversion. It happens every day. 
Daily, we must put off. And daily we must put on. Daily we got to put off. It's like every day we're that farmer that comes in from the fields. Every day we got to intentionally and proactively put off the old attitudes and actions that were consistent with our old life. And isn't that exactly what Paul says here? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now let me just let me just take a step back and state the obvious. This takes work. Okay? This takes work. This is, this is anything but easy. And this is anything but automatic. In a way, we have to disassociate it from the farmer coming in from the fields. Because you know what the farmer does? Once he unbuttons his shirt, it just falls off. <laughs> well, the flesh does not fall off. Somebody say, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does not. Which is why we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Which is why we daily need for our thoughts to be shaped by the word of God. I think this is really interesting here. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say, be renewed in your heart. Doesn't our world just bypass the mind and go straight to the heart? It does. The world just wants to get away from the mind and go right to the heart. But according to the Bible, we get to the heart through the mind. So similar to what Paul says in Romans, right? Don't be conformed to this world. Don't live like a non-Christian, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It speaks to our need for the Bible, brothers and sisters. We, we need the Bible. We need the Bible like a scuba diver needs oxygen. We, we need this, we need this, we need this, not just on Sunday. We need it Monday through Saturday. We need to fill our minds with the precious truths of God's Word. And we need to remember that our minds are never neutral. Our minds are always being shaped. The question is, what is our minds being shaped by? And we need to remember that it's through the renewal of our minds that we are helped to put on the new man. Which is why Paul emphasizes this here. As we reflect on the word of God and the implications of the word of God, we are helped to put on the new self. We're helped to live in keeping with our new identity in Christ. We're helped in our daily Christian lives to to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness. So what does that look like? Put off the old self, put on the new self. What does that look like? Well, in one sense, you could just write this down. It just means live according to the whole Bible. Okay, that's good. And that's true. Live according to the Bible. But Paul's going to just narrow some things down for us here and throughout the book of Ephesians. So, in a little bit in Ephesians, he's going to get to all sorts of stuff. and He's going to get to all sorts of different realms. So he's going to talk about how the gospel impacts husbands and wives and, and children and, and workers. All sorts of different things. But first things first, church life. For Paul, the Christian life is church life. And so the first thing he speaks of is how our identity is lived out with one another. How our identity is lived out with one another in the church. So what he does is he identifies vices that are to be put off. Think old man. And he's got virtues that we are to put on. So he just told us to put off and put on. It makes total sense that he would give us vices to say no to and virtues to say yes to in their place. And it's in the context of the community of faith. So he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. 
for we are members one of another. What is this saying? It's just saying don't lie, but speak the truth. It feels like truth is kind of hard to come by these days. You guys think so? So what do you do when you read news articles? You think, is this trustworthy or is this working some angle? Right? What do you do when you listen to politicians at press conferences? You're thinking, this is surely working an angle. I don't know if this guy's telling the truth. Truth is just kind of hard to come by. Seems like everybody's working an angle. Well, truth is, or not speaking the truth, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the father of lies, the ancient serpent, the devil. He is the father of lies, the scripture says. But of course, our God is the God of truth. He is truth. His word is truth. His son is truth. And thus, God's people must be characterized by truth. You know that that phrase, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Those are really good words to live by. And it's so refreshing amidst the backdrop of the world. And it's so important for church health. Few things are more damaging to unity and harmony in the local church than lies, brothers and sisters. You know, in my experience as a pastor, reconciliation between brothers and sisters can go well, provided there's honesty and humility in the midst of it all. But if either one of those is lost, if one brother or sister begins to deny something, or posture such that he really doesn't confess of something, or just say nothing's really wrong, what is he being? He's being dishonest. Reconciliation breaks down. You must have honesty and you must have humility in order for reconciliation to take place. If not, it all falls apart. And so Paul says, do not lie, but speak the truth to one another. And he also says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now I want you to notice something. Not all anger is bad. In fact, we should be angry about one thing, very much so. We should be angry about our sin. We should hate our sin. We should hate our sin, brothers and sisters. We should be indignant towards our sin. We should make war with our sin, not peace with our sin. But that's not the anger this is talking about. This is talking about relational anger. So this is talking about anger towards your brother and sister. And this is just a reality when we live life together. So we step on each other's toes. We sin against one another. We say dumb things. We do dumb things. And when this happens, you've got several options, okay? Number one, you can choose to step over these things in love. Peter says love covers over a multitude of sins. And you can just do that. You can just choose to say, you know what? This is not a big deal. You forgive in your heart. You move on. But when you can't do that, you've got to reconcile. And you've got to reconcile quickly. Don't, go, don't let the sun go down on your anger means deal with your relational anger quickly. Now, it doesn't literally mean don't let the sun go down on your anger. Otherwise, Alaskans in the summer would be like, whew, I could be mad for a whole lot longer than everybody else. Um, that is not what it's saying. It's saying you've got to take care of this quickly. You can't sit and stew you can't ruminate on it and think on it. It can't be like a, like, a, like a good soup in the pot on simmer for a long time for all those flavors to come together because what's going to come together in the end is bitterness and malice and slander and hatred. 
So you can't do that. You have to reconcile quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You need to take action. You need to take action quickly. And if you don't, what you're actually doing is you're giving opportunity to the devil, which is what Paul tells us we shouldn't. Give no opportunity to the devil. So this has to be done. Otherwise, it's, it's really like to give the devil a key to the church. Here. We don't give keys to the church to people we don't trust. But, when you don't reconcile with your brother and sister, it's like giving the devil a key to the church. Here, I just want to invite you to come on in. Um, and he will happily take that opportunity, brothers and sisters. He will make the most of that opportunity. He will light a match to the tenders of unreconciled relationships. And he will delight as the church burns down from within. And the world looks on and says, yeah, they can't even get along with each other. And so we have to take care that we reconcile with one another quickly. Uh, Paul says this, Don't let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Apparently in Ephesus there were brothers and sisters who had been thieves in time past. Remember that the gospel is not for the healthy but for the sick. Praise God. But you can't live like that anymore. You can't steal to provide for your needs. What do you need to do? You need to work. But not only to provide for yourself. Look at what he says. He says you need to work to share. You need to work so that you can have something to share with those in need. So not only are you now not a taker. You're a worker so that you can be a giver to those who have need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. When you think about building up, I hope you think about chapter 4, where the gifts that God has given to us are to build up the local church, where when every part of the body is working properly, the church builds itself up in love. What Paul is saying here is that if there is corrupting talk that comes out of our mouths, it does not build up, it instead tears down. And so we're told we must speak appropriate words with one another, as is good for building up, so they can give grace to those who hear. That old phrase, sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me is a bunch of bogus. Our words can build up, our words can tear down. And we are to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but such as is good for the edification of the body. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Well, connecting it to a general truth, whenever we live out of step with the Word of God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. But connecting it to a specific truth, when we live lives that disrupt the unity and the harmony of the church, that grieves the Spirit. Because remember, it's the Spirit who's given us our unity in chapter 4, verse 2. It's the Spirit who's given us that. And so when we live lives that disrupt it, we grieve Him. I wonder if you see the connection here. When we disrupt unity, we give the devil an opportunity. And when we live lives that disrupt our unity, we grieve the Spirit. Let's not give the devil an opportunity and let's not grieve the Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So closely connected to what's come before, right? 
It's just a call to put off all of those fleshly impulses that we have. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. That's what happens when you stew. Put all those off. Put all those off and put on what? Kindness. Tenderheartedness towards one another. Forgiveness towards one another. And, and, and what's the model? What's the motivation for all of this? Well, it's how God has acted towards us in Jesus Christ. God has acted towards us in mercy and in grace and in forgiveness despite our debt of sin, which was more ginormous than any debt of sin we owe one another. What has God done? Oh, He's simply forgiven it. He has wiped the slate clean. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is really a summary of all that's come before. And all these virtues that we are to put on could be rightly summed up by or put underneath the umbrella of love. Gospel-fueled love. We treat one another, we relate to one another, we speak with one another, we forgive one another, we love one another, and what's the motivation? What's underneath it all? The gospel. We love as Christ has loved us. The gospel is the motivator underneath all of this and helps us to imitate God as dear children. Children look like their parents, for good or for worse. They look like their parents. They act like their parents. We are to look like our Father, God, and our brother, Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, you have to change your clothes. You have to change your clothes. How can you walk in your former manner of life? You can't. Change your clothes. And keep changing your clothes. Let non-Christians who know you say this of you and of our church. They hate sin, but they are not hateful. They love each other. And they love the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be what others see of us. And brothers and sisters, use this as a diagnostic. Please, please, please ask yourself, am I... Am I putting off the old man and putting on the new man daily? And please know this is urgent. I heard an example from another pastor who talked about how, and it it really resonated with me, when I go to the dentist, the dental hygienist asks me if I'm flossing. And I say no every time. And she reminds me how much I should be flossing and how that would be good for me. And every time I nod, she's finally given up on it. We have a wonderful relationship. Is that how you hear this? Do you hear this like, that would be a good idea. It would be a good idea to put off your old man and put on the new. But grace, 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 grace covers sin. Brothers and sisters, that's not how you should hear this at all. You should hear this like a medical professional telling you, you have a particular food allergy and if you eat this, you will die. You must stay away from certain things. You must embrace other things. 
You must put off actions, attitudes, thinking that is not in keeping with the word of God and the gospel. And you must embrace the others. And you will do this as you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. And as you remind yourself of the gospel. And what God has done for you in Christ. So put off, brothers and sisters, and put on for the glory of God, for our good, for the flourishing of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Spirit who is in us, who is transforming us into the image of our father and our older brother. But Father, this is not a passive work on our part. This is an active work on our part. Give us grace and help us, we pray, to come every day and to put off and put on. In Jesus' name, amen.